Good morning, everybody. Um, as Pastor Matt mentioned, we're going to start a new sermon series this morning focused on the spiritual disciplines. And um, the idea here is to help us cultivate a richer life with Jesus, to strengthen our Christian life, um, or, or if you take the image from the sermon series itself of deeply rooted, the goal here is to help us flourish. No matter what the circumstances are, if our joy and our hope and our strength is found in the Lord, then those things are available for us. And traditionally, these spiritual disciplines have been the means or the ways that Christians have utilized to grow deeper in their faith. Um, now, the word discipline can be somewhat lost on us, um, and there's different words that can be used for these spiritual disciplines. And I just want to review a few of them just to get you thinking of different facets of what we're talking about. Um, sometimes these are called spiritual exercises. And I appreciate that language because an exercise is something you do that strengthens. Uh, sometimes they're called the spiritual practices. And that's not just because they're something we, we do and do regularly, but it's also something that we grow in our ability to do rightly. In other words, we're not just learning from the disciplines. The disciplines have to be learned themselves. But the word discipline is also very helpful because it implies that this is something that takes effort, that you have to work towards, that doesn't come naturally. For example, one of the spiritual disciplines we're going to look at in a few weeks is thanksgiving, the giving of thanks, thanking God. And so the scriptures are clear that in all of our circumstances, no matter what's going on in our life, we should be giving thanks. That doesn't come naturally. We have a tendency to focus on the difficulties. Maybe you resonate with Jacob, whose life gets really hard in the book of Genesis, and he says, the whole world's against me. And so Thanksgiving is, is something, it's a, it's a muscle that naturally is very weak and needs to be strengthened, and that takes discipline. But again, the goal of the disciplines is not some sort of stoic practice to make us firmer in our resolve. Uh, it's not some sort of magic incantation uh, or ritual uh, that brings about blessings, and it doesn't put God in our debt. Instead, it is the way that we connect with God and cultivate our relationship with Him. This morning, we're going to talk about Bible meditation, and to do so, uh, I'd like to look at just a single verse in the book of Joshua. If you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and open it up to Joshua chapter 1. I'll give you just a minute to turn there. While you're turning there, in the opening pages of the book of Joshua, Moses has just passed away, and Israel and Joshua are about to do something new. Joshua is stepping into the role of leadership of the people of Israel. He's following a man, Moses, who had such a close relationship with God that at one point, when God is defending Moses from his accusers, he says, look, prophets and other people I speak to in dreams and visions, but with Moses, I speak face to face. 
Moses had been to the top of Mount Sinai and had been in the presence of God. You may remember in the book of Exodus, he had asked God to reveal himself fully to him and passed by him while he was hidden in the rock. And so Joshua was stepping in to be a leader and he needed depth for his own life. He needed to be in a deeper relationship uh, with God for that to work out. In the same way, Israel had been wandering in the wilderness because of their disobedience for 40 years, and they were about to enter into the promised land. It was new territory. And with that new territory came a call, uh, a call that was going to involve battles and stepping out in faith and these types of things. And so it's appropriate that at the commissioning of Joshua here in chapter one, God gives him a command that evokes one of the spiritual disciplines, specifically meditation on the scriptures. And so look with me here in chapter one, verse eight. God speaking to Joshua says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Let's pray and then we'll look together at this practice, at this discipline of Bible meditation. Father, I want to speak for all of us collectively this morning. Whether we have been Christians for a long time or a short time, whether we are in a fruitful season or a dry season, uh, even if we are here this morning and we are not a Christian, we know that there is a part of us that longs to know you better. We know there's a part of us that desires to press in deeper, to have the stability to build our, our lives on the foundation that is never shaken, the foundation of the Lord himself. And so I pray for these next few weeks and for this morning in particular, as we look at the spiritual disciplines, that you would help us not just to understand the disciplines, but that you would help us to begin to practice them in a more regular and uh, a more effective fashion, Lord. And again, we don't do these things to be good Christians to impress you or to impress our friends. We re remember what Jesus said, that these things belong in the closet, hidden from view of other people. We do them as acts of devotion. We do them to desire to know you. And we stand this morning as we study this practice on your own words, God, when you said, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. That is our desire this morning. Help equip us to fulfill it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Moses has put together what is here in Joshua called the book of the law. Most likely that includes all uh, of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Joshua here is not called uh, so much to continue to write scripture, but instead he's supposed to take the book as it is, the Pentateuch, the book of the law, and he is to meditate on it. He's to engage with it, it says here, day and night. He has this book, it's external, it's in front of him, but if it's going to be put into effect, he has to ingest it, he has to take it into himself. In fact, the Hebrew word here uh, for meditate, which is sometimes translated in our Old Test Testament and other places uh, with words like muttering, 
it, it directly evokes the mouth. It has to do with chewing on or mumbling about, or, you know, when you read quietly to yourself and you kind of mutter your way through the text, it has to do with that. But before we get into how to go about Bible meditation and why it matters, I want to just make a quick distinction here. In fact, I want to talk about what Bible meditation is not on a few different levels. Um, first and foremost, Bible meditation is not the same thing as most forms of Eastern meditation. And it's not because, uh, not because they just differ in their worldview or those types of things, uh, but their practice is very focused in a different direction. Most forms of Eastern meditation may have you focus on a particular object, but the goal of focusing on that particular object is to empty yourself uh, and to to create distance between yourself and the world around you. Transcendental meditation and these types of things, it's kind of like the practice that your eyes go through when you're looking at one of those magic eye books. You allow your eyes to unfocus so you can really see. And so a good adjective or a good verb for Eastern meditation is to empty. Bible meditation is the exact opposite of that. Its goal is to fill. Okay. The goal of Bible meditation is to take in the Word of God, to focus on the Word of God, and to rightly see it so that you connect with the God of the Word of God. Okay. But Bible meditation is also different than Bible reading. Now, I would encourage you to have the heart of John Wesley, the evangelist of early uh, uh, early 19th century history, who, uh, who said of the Bible, if God has written a book to tell me about himself and to tell me the way to heaven, by all means, give me that book. Make me, he said, a man of one book. He devoted his life to this book and to the sharing of it with other people. And of course, that includes reading the Bible. And so that is a practice that should be encouraged. But when we talk about uh, engaging with the Word of God, uh, there's a few different approaches. All of them are valuable, and you can think of them uh, like if you were doing a survey of a national park. Okay. In fact, the word survey is really helpful because that's one of the ways that I would encourage you to engage with the Bible, which is to read the whole of it, to get an overview of what it teaches, to read from Genesis to Revelation, to come to understand the contents of the Bible, its major themes, the history of what God has done on earth in terms of redemption as recorded in the Bible, who God is in the biggest picture. A good way to do this is those read the Bible in a year or read the Bible you know, in two years. In fact, there's a little over 1,100 chapters in your Bible, which mathematically means if you read just three chapters a day, you can read through the whole Bible every year. And so that's like if we were at our national park and you fly over it in a helicopter and you see, okay, you know, there's, uh, there's a big rock formation over there and here's a forest of cypress trees and here's some hot springs. And you could come out of that with a big map, right? The map wouldn't give you all of the details, but it would give you the overview. 
Bible meditation is not just reading the Bible in a survey approach like that. It's also not the same thing as Bible study. Bible study is best done one Bible book at a time, whereas Bible reading honors the fact that God has given us one book and that the whole story has unity and works together for a single purpose. Bible study looks at the Bible as a library of books and seeks to understand at a deeper level a single book. And so a good way to do this is to take, for example, the book of Ephesians and read through it over and over again, to take out a pen and notice words that are repeated, to try and draw out the argument of the author throughout the text, or if it's a narrative, the plot of the story, to Uh, consider the Bible as literature so that you can better understand what it teaches. And again, that's something that is very important. It's a primary approach that we take most Sundays as we work through the Bible a paragraph at a time. But Bible meditation is not the same thing as Bible study. Bible meditation would be like taking that big map that we talked about earlier and saying, you know what, I want to know more about the hot springs. And so you set up camp in the hot springs and you live there for a couple of weeks and you measure the temperature of the water and its uh, you know, mineral contents and you record the, uh, the life and the signs of life that you see around you. And you come so that at the end of it, you can say, I know this plot of ground. I understand this now. And you go, now I'm going to move over to the forest, okay? But Bible meditation is is smaller than that. It's more focused than that. And its goal is a little bit different. Whereas Bible survey seeks to get an overview, whereas Bible study seeks to comprehend Uh, Here, the goal is to be changed. The goal is to be transformed. Whereas Bible study often focuses on putting the Bible here in our brain, Bible meditation doesn't stop until it's here in our hearts. And the way, uh, the way that we go about this, if I can go back to my national park metaphor, is like studying a single tree in that forest. Okay, so here you're not observing the whole forest, although you want to recognize this tree is part of the forest, what we call context. But here you're studying a single tree. You're coming to know its age and its history. Uh, Maybe even a better metaphor is you recognize that this particular plant has medicinal value. And so now you're going to partake of it and you're going to use it. And in some way it changes you, it impacts you, it brings health or healing or these types of things. Now, another way to think about Bible meditation uh, is to think of it as being um, being like steeping tea. Okay. Most of the time when we read the Bible, we engage with it like uh, uh, in these broader ways, but meditation is like steeping. Now, I'm assuming that most of you have made tea at one time or another, and you know that it's not sufficient to just take the tea bag and just plop it in the water and pull it out, and boom, you have a cup of tea. Instead, steeping takes very hot water and engages with the tea bag, and it draws 
everything out of the tea bag. And at the end, you don't have a bag full of tea and water. They've become one. Now you have a nice, beautiful cup of tea. Bible meditation is like that. It's steeping in the text and drawing out its meaning and being changed by its meaning. For all of those reasons, it's best done a verse or two at a time. Bible meditation selects a single verse and seeks to engage with it effectively so that we better understand and better live out the truths of that text. Now, I would suggest to you, because we're talking about disciplines here, that this would be a beneficial practice for all of you to do on the daily. In fact, look again here at Joshua 1.8. It says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Now, by putting day and night there uh, together, contrasting imagery, day and night, the same way we would say sun and moon or near and far. Usually we would call that in figurative language a merism. And the idea isn't you should do it once per day and once at night, but that you should do it all the time, right? If you're doing something day and night, right? If you want to rock and roll all night and party every day, it means your whole life, right? It's the same idea. It's a merism. Uh, but nonetheless, clearly, if the idea is to be doing this continuously, then at the very least, it should be done daily. And so what I would suggest to you is you can actually couple these two or three things Bible survey, Bible study, and Bible meditation, you can couple them together in a way that will increase your engagement with the Word of God. Um, but if we just take the biggest and the smallest and put them together, here's a really effective practice that I would encourage you to consider. If you do your daily Bible reading, and you do, like I said, starting in Genesis, just three chapters every morning, what I would encourage you is after you've read through your three chapters, skim back through those three chapters and select a verse to meditate on. Maybe it's one that struck you or stood out to you. Maybe it's one that is theologically dense. It carries a lot of weight of the text. Maybe it's one uh, that you're familiar with and maybe you've memorized and you just want to sit with it again. Uh, maybe it's one that you don't understand or you found natural resistance to in your heart. Um, often I talk about the yabbits, right? The evil yabbits that live in all of us. And so when we hear certain things, and honestly, we've all been on Facebook lately, so it just takes a Facebook headlight to he uh, Facebook headline to bring out the yabbits. We read something and we go, yeah, but really? We go, yeah, but what about, yeah, but... That's not how it works, right? That is also, that place of hesitation, a great place to pause and to meditate on Scripture. Now, what I wanted to do this morning was provide us all with a super memorable and practical approach to Bible meditation. And the best way, of course, to do that is to give you steps or to give you an outline. Um, and whereas usually I would have tried to give you an outline uh, you know, where, where the points were really clear or, or powerful, uh, but also somewhat impressive. Uh, this morning, I decided on settling something that just will not be forgotten, even though it's a little bit silly. 
When we go about meditating on scripture, there's really three steps to keep in mind. And for the sake of all of our memories, and so that you can all grow in this practice, here's what I've called them. The microscope, the telescope, and the telephone. Okay? Microscope, telescope, telephone. That is a good way to remember the three steps that we take in the meditation of scripture. Okay? And so what I'd like to do is teach you those three steps this morning, primarily by engaging with Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, okay? So first we start with our microscope, right? The, the goal of a microscope is to inspect something at a closer level. And so the first step that we take in meditating on scripture is to concentrate on the passage that we're seeking to meditate on until we understand it, okay? The goal here is simply to just think through what the passage actually says and what it actually means, okay? So we pull out our microscope, and this is best done by asking questions. So another way that you can think of step one is that you want to interrogate the text, Okay? As if you could take this verse and put it in a chair, in a desk, in a locked room, and you lean on the table and you start to ask it questions, right? Interrogate the text. Now, the thing about uh, Bible meditation, in the same way the thing about using a microscope, is there's a skill in knowing what to look for. There's a skill in knowing what questions to ask. I love in that opening episode uh, of the TV show, Sherlock, uh, A Study in Pink, where Scotland Yard has gotten to this house and found a woman murdered uh, and they can't, they can't crack the case. And in comes Sherlock and he just instantly puts all these things together and walks out having a way to find the killer. But the truth is, both Sherlock and Scot Scotland Yard have the same, uh, same details sitting in front of them, have the same ed evidence laying at their foot. Uh, what is the difference between their approaches? Simply just that Sherlock asks better questions, right? More nuanced questions, more thoughtful questions. And so whereas they're asking, how did this woman die, which is big, and obvious and provides no steps forward, he's asking questions like, why is there mud on her left heel and not on her right, right? It's the difference in questions that leads to a difference in answers. Better questions lead to better answers. And so I wanna give you some guidance on how to do this. One of the things that I would suggest is helpful here is you want to stop and think about what particular words mean, okay? So for example, in verse 8 here, it says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, okay? Now, generally, when we engage with books as modern people, we don't involve our mouths. But the majority of the history of the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New, God's people encountered God's word verbally, okay? The majority of the people we find in the church in the New Testament were illiterate. Side note, that includes, at least in the beginning, some of our authors of scripture, like the fisherman Peter. Um, and they also didn't have a private copy of the scripture for themselves. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why Bible memorization has been so valuable to the church, because that way you could take the Bible with you if you didn't have a private copy. But getting back to the point here, um, 
most of the church engaged with the Bible as it was read aloud. In fact, the rabbis had a saying, if you're going to study the scriptures and you want to forget what you learn, read it quietly to yourself. Okay? There's a value in verbalizing the word of God. There's a value in making it a part of us. And so here, Joshua is not just called to read the book of the law. He's not just called to memorize it. He's called to recite it. Okay, And so when we look at just this little phrase, not depart from your mouth, we understand there that this is more than just reading quietly to yourself. Okay. Other questions to ask are, how do parts of the verse work together? Here, what you're looking for is the logic of the sentence. Okay. When we talk in English or in any other language, a good deal of the language or the words that make up our sentences are connective tissues. Okay. So we may have an object and an actor, right? But what happens between them is the connective tissue. And so sometimes that's actions like verbs, but a lot of times it's logic connectors, conjunctions, uh, and prepositions, right? And so when, when John goes to the store, that little word to tells us what John's relationship is to the store. Also logic words like because, in order to, so that, therefore, Okay, all of this language is connective tissue. And our tendency is because they're just the small words, just, just breeze through them. But slowing down and looking more closely at them will teach us things about the meaning of a verse. Again, let me read to you Joshua 1 verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Success. We see two connections here that are very important to understanding this verse. The first is we are to meditate on the scriptures day and night so that we would be careful to live them out, to act upon them. As it says here, careful to do according to all that is written in it. The goal here is not just to work into our minds. But once it's in our minds and even our hearts to work out into our life. Remember that illustration earlier of steeping tea. The goal is not just uh, to study the bag of tea. You could tear apart a bag of tea and use your tweezers and pull out every individual leaf and come to understand the contents of the tea. But if you want to ingest the tea and make something new, if you want to turn tea bag elements into a nice cup of tea, then you have to draw those things out of the tea and into yourself. And so that means uh, that it should change your life, that you should work it out into your life, that you should obey the commands, that you should live in light of who God really is. But there's a second piece of connective tissue. Meditate on it day and night, so that you will be careful to do it, and then it finishes here, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Okay, And so we see here uh, that we are to obey the word, to live it out, because it leads to, uh, to prospering. It leads to flourishing. It leads to success. Now, I could have just as easily taken us to Psalm chapter 1, 
which is all about Bible meditation. And there it says that the one who meditates on the word will be like a tree firmly planted by a stream who bears fruit in season and out of season. Okay. And so meditation leads to flourishing. Another way that you can go about this first step and engage in your microscope is to use word emphasis. One of the things that's different about a written text and a spoken text is where the emphasis is put. And that emphasis impacts the meaning. When we verbalize something and change the emphasis, it helps us to shift the focal point or the fulcrum of what we're reading, and that impacts our understanding of it. Instead of doing this with Joshua 1.8, let me just illustrate this with John 3.16. And so a good way to do this, a good way to invoke your microscope and study John 3.16 would be to emphasize a different word on every reading, okay? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, okay? When we focus there on the word God, it helps us to think about the one who love the world. For God so loved the world, right? The word so brings out a level. It's not just that God loved the world. God loved the world so much. He loved the world in just this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. God's giving of his son was an act of love. Now I'm going through this relatively quickly, but stopping and thinking about each one of these. For God so loved the world, Who is it that Jesus died for? Who was he interested in? What does the word world mean in that context? Okay, what did God do with his love? He gave, okay, love is giving and God's sending of Jesus was a gift. His only son, right? You can just move through it. That's another way that we go about engaging with our microscope. Okay, and then the last one that I would recommend, and it actually probably should be the first one you engage with is context. We already did that with Joshua 1.8. When we started in the introduction, I told you that Joshua here is given a new assignment. He's starting out as a leader. We talked about the fact that the Pentateuch has already been written, and now he's told what to do with it, right? The book of the law has been written. Now what? Is it just to be put on a library shelf or sold on eBay for a profit for being a Moses original? No, it's to be engaged with. It's to be meditated on. It's to be memorized. It's to be taken in, and it's to be obeyed. All of that helps us to understand Joshua 1.8 because we understand Joshua 1.7 and we understand the book of Joshua in the context of the whole Bible. Okay, So that's using our microscope and that's where it begins. We want to investigate and interrogate and inspect the text for every detail. And the goal again is to understand what the verse actually says and what the verse actually means. But just doing that may help you to understand the Bible, but it's not fully meditation. And so we have to move on from microscope to telescope. Now, that first step that we talked about would be valuable for you in the reading of any given book. You could become a better student of Harry Potter or of William Shakespeare uh, or of the poets by operating with that microscope view of the text. But telescope. Stepping on to the second step, we do not because God wrote his word down, but because it is the word of God. We engage with the Bible with our telescope in mind because the purpose of the Bible is specific. 
The Bible is not written down just as a record of history. The Bible is not written down just to tell us the difference between right and wrong. The Bible is, in its own language, revelation. Its purpose is to reveal, to show us something. And what is it that it wants to show us? Not just the end of the world or some sort of prophetic value uh, or what the lotto numbers will be on Tuesday night. The purpose of the Bible is self-revelation. It's authorial revelation. God gave us his word to teach us who he is. Okay. Whereas a microscope help us to, helps us to look at things closely, telescopes are something we look through to look at things that are distant. The whole idea of the word of God is although some aspects of who God is are clearly seen in creation, the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen, Romans chapter 1 says. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. But actually knowing who God is, his character, knowing what he's done in history, that requires revelation. You can't find it with the turn of a spade. You can't find it by solving a mathematical equation. You can't determine God's character or the purpose of life as us created in God's image uh, in a test tube. Instead, we need revelation. And the glorious thing is that God desires to be made known, and he's given us his word to know him. And so the second step we do here is we take the text and we use it as a telescope and we use it to look through and see who God really is. Okay? In other words, in step two, we ask questions that relate the text to God. The questions we ask here are not merely, not simply, what does this text demand of me? But who is the God who is speaking this? What do I learn about God? And so the questions you ask in this place are, what does this reveal about God? And what do we learn here in Joshua 1 verse 8? Again, listen, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Now, at first reading, you might say this verse doesn't say anything about God, but it does imply quite a lot about who God is. First, this idea of the book of the law is God's law. And so we encounter here in Joshua 1.8, God as lawmaker. Okay, We see our accountability to God, that he uh, is an authority in our life, that we, have, uh, that we owe something to, we owe our obedience to. Now, sometimes as Christians, and even more so as modern America, Americans, the idea of obedience and the idea of authority over us, especially ultimate authority, can be very difficult. Or maybe you grew up in a church that was tremendously religious and didn't focus on the gospel. And so when you hear reference to the law or to obedience or to commandments, you instantly clam up on the inside. And that's an understandable approach because let's just recognize that religion as a whole including Christianity, and even the Word of God has been used as a tool to do damage. However, if we just look at Joshua 1 verse 8, what do we find out about this law-giving God? When we look at the end of the verse here, it says, when you obey the law here, then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. Why is God interested in us keeping his law? It's not 
because he is, uh, you know, a stickler for rules. It's not because he's insecure and wants to put us in our place. It's with our interest in mind. I heard it put this way one time. The laws laid out in the Bible don't operate so much as a legal code of right and wrong as it does like your, dry, or like your automobile manual. Right? If you open up your glove box and you have a newer car, you'll find in it the manual for your car, and it tells you the things you need to do for your car, when to change your oil, how often, at what mileage markers to get maintenance. Now, you are free to not obey any of those things, but it is uh, aligned with keeping the car in good shape. And so you're free not to do those things, but you won't be free to continue driving your car unless you do so. God is not just our lawgiver, but our creator. He knows what we were designed for. He knows what we were built for. He's given our lives purpose. And the law reveals to us how to achieve God's purposes, how to flourish as human beings. And so we find out here that not just is God the lawmaker, but that he is a good and loving lawmaker, that he's laid out these things as guidelines so that we can flourish in our life. Okay, And so we do find God in this text. Other telescope questions to ask include, how can I praise him for and through this? What would that look like here? This would be praising God for the fact that his law is good, for the fact that he desires not just for us to live, but like Jesus says, to have life abundantly, to flourish. Praising God uh, for being wise and giving us the rules that look beyond our circumstances and see life as it really is. Other questions to ask with our telescope is, if this is who God is, what difference does it make to how I live? Okay, and clearly here, the question becomes one of obedience, but not just one of obedience, but reason or motive for obedience. Do I obey God because he is merely the judge? Do I obey God out of guilt or out of greed? Guilt says, if I don't do this, God will get me. Greed says, if I just keep the rules, everything will turn up roses. Or do I obey God because I really believe he is right and true and good? And because he has given the law out of love, do we obey it out of love, right? Another question, what behavior, harmful emotions, or false attitudes stem from forgetting that who he is? And so some of those false attitudes may be one of nonchalance that says, look, I'm forgiven, so I can do whatever I want. I have my get out of hell free card because Jesus died for me. So God's rules don't really apply to me. I'm free to do whatever I want. But that would be to misunderstand the purpose of God's law. It would be to limit it to just a contractual obligation to fulfill to escape hell instead of the wisdom of a loving father who is trying to bring you uh, other harmful emotions may be resentment, that God tells you you can't do things that you really want to do. But if you can remember that he has your best interest at heart and that he is wise, then that resentment is out of place. Here's another one to ask. How would my neighborhood or my family or my friends be different if they saw this truth more deeply? Most of the time when our neighbors respond with the Bible, they respond with it as being outdated 
or regressive. They respond with the things it, teach, it teaches to be foolishness or oppressive or these types of things. But what if God really is the good and wise lawgiver? It would change things for their lives, wouldn't it? And then a very practical one to finish with is, does my life demonstrate that I am remembering and acting on this? Okay, this is where you stop and you review your last week and you say, when I respond to the commands that God has given, when I look at how I go about God's word, when I look at decision-making in my life, do I honestly believe that this is who God is, right? In, in this sense, you're using the telescope uh, not just to, um, to look at God, but also to look honestly at yourself. Going back to that idea of interrogation, where it's the microscope, we interrogate the text. To some degree, it's appropriate in the telescope level to let the text interrogate us. Okay, Whenever we read the Bible as Christians, we don't just read it above it objectively, seeking to understand it, judge it, and interpret it. Sooner or later, we have to put it over us and allow it to interpret us, allow it to stand over us, to live our lives in light of it, okay? And so part of in, uh, this second step, the telescope, is letting the text lay us bare. As it says in the book of, um, in the book of Hebrews, uh, the word of God is like a sharp sword. And it exposes the truth of our heart. James says that it's like a mirror and it shows us our true condition. Okay, And so in this second step of meditation, we allow that work to fully and honestly happen. Okay, So microscope, telescope, and then telephone. If you just stop at the first two steps, you may have rightly done theology determined who God says that he is rightly. You may also have judged the distance between your life as it is and your life as it should be. You've exposed these things, but I want you to remember what we talked about last week at the end of Mark's gospel. You could do these first two steps and still be honoring a dead Jesus instead of worshiping a living Jesus. The goal of the word of God is not just to reveal who God is, but it's also to be part of our conversation with God. It's to reveal who God is so that we would know him personally. Jonathan Edwards used to contrast a nominal or a Christianity only in name with a true Christianity, and this is how he did it. He said, you can know how sweet honey is, but that's not the same thing as tasting it. God desires not just for us to know who he is, but to actually know him, to be in relationship with him, to experience his love, to invite him in. This is all the more important for us as Christians, because even when we're looking at a text like this that talks about commandments and obedience, that is not something we do to get to God. God sent Jesus while we were disobedient to take care of that issue, but he's also given us his spirit so that he may assist and empower us in obedience. And so to take the word of God and take instructions from it and not ask for Jesus's help is to completely misunderstand the Christian message as a whole. And so here we finish by moving from the text or our view of God through the text to actually relating with God, to actually entering into God's presence.
okay? And that's why I've moved on to a telephone here because a microscope and a telescope aren't inherently relational, but a telephone is. A telephone connects two people. A telephone involves a conversation where two people interact with one another. And so after you've done these first two steps, the final step of biblical meditation is to talk in prayer to the God you've come to see in the text. And this takes on a couple of different things. One of the ways you do this is that you confess sin provoked by the passage. You own up to the places where you are not living in light of the truth of these texts. You confess the particular places in your life, the particular attitudes, the particular thought patterns that are not in line with God. And maybe even more than that, uh, sometimes the only thing you can do is to recognize that your whole time of meditation here has been uh, cold. It feels in some way wasted or uh, unhelpful. Your heart's just not in it. Stopping what you're doing when you're meditating and saying, God, I really do desire to know you, but this morning you feel so distant. Your word feels just like words on a page. The Psalms are full of this last step of the telephone relationship with God. And it includes honestly describing and explaining where you're at. Another one, of course, is, is just outright worship, praising God for who he is. God, thank you that you are the good lawmaker, that you love me and like a loving father have laid out the ways and the means to a life that flourishes, that loves my neighbor, that honors you and brings about abundant life for me. So confession is appropriate, praising God for who he is. Maybe the text draws you into a, uh, a hymn uh, or a worship song that you know, and you just you know, respond to that in song. Asking God to help you learn these truths, to help you implement them, to show you where in particular relationships these things need to be lived out, to show you the places where he... Uh, uh, desires to make changes in your life. And I want to add to this listening to God. Okay. So we confess, we praise, we ask, and we listen. One very appropriate way to meditate on the scriptures is to open them up, not to you as interpreter, and open them up, not just to your self-assessment of how you're doing, but God saying, God, this morning as I'm reading this text, is there anything you want to see or want me to see? Is there anything you desire to show me, to teach me? Again, because Jesus is alive, because he has vested interest in changing and transforming you into his image, because the author of scripture is also present in relationship with you, it's appropriate to ask questions and then to listen. And I would encourage you not just to listen into the silence, but sometimes to listen and then to reread the text. See some, if something jumps out to you. See if something stands out to you for a new time. See if a new connection is made or if a, uh, a happening in your life comes to mind. Allow God to be at work in your life. So very simply, this is the practice of Bible meditation. And I just want to finish today um, by explaining why this is valuable and important. I mentioned that this is mentioned to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. It's laid out as an ideal in Psalm 1, but we also see it in the New Testament. Paul gives this simple exhortation to the church in Colossae in the book of Colossians. He says, let the word of God 
dwell in you richly. How is it that you take the word of God from being external and make it internal? How is it that it dwells in you so richly that like those tea leaves, it begins to transform you from just a bunch of hot water into this beautiful and maybe even medicinal, valuable concoction? How is it that the word of God becomes the flourishing life of a Christian? It becomes this way through meditation. It becomes this way by placing the word of God in our hearts, by seeking to understand it more, by seeking to understand ourselves and God in light of it more, and by being drawn into the very presence of the God that the Bible reveals. Again, I would encourage you that just as we see here in Joshua, as well as we see in the Psalms, as well as other places I would point to, this should be part of your daily practice as a Christian. Whether you do it the first thing in the morning or on your lunch break or right before bed, to take a passage of scripture and to read it through and then to select a single verse and just take five to 15 minutes to just draw out and understand and engage with both the scriptures and the God who authored them. Uh, that is one of the disciplines. It's one of the practices that the church has done throughout history. It's one of the means that God uses to transform us and to change us. Okay. Part of the way that I would suggest this is that there's a difference between taking hold of the Bible and allowing it to take hold of you. And the way that we do that, the way that God takes up more and more ground in our heart and in our life, is through meditation on the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the gift of your word, Lord, not just as a book of rules, not just as a record of history, but as a revelation of who you are, Lord. Not just a record of you speaking, but a means by which you still speak. Father, you desire to know us. Jesus, you said your sheep would know your voice and would hear it and would follow you. Holy Spirit, you authored these scriptures through the moving of individual human beings, and you've been given to us as a gift to illuminate and understand the scriptures. We pray that you would be at work. But right now, Lord, my, my desire is more simple. Just because something is healthy for us doesn't mean that we want it like it should. We all know that we should eat more vegetables, but oftentimes we choose the cheaper option, the quicker calories, the fat-soaked things in our lives. And it's the same with your word, Lord. I pray that you would cultivate us in us a desire to know you so deep that it would motivate us to begin again with the disciplines, including Bible meditation. I pray that we would prioritize sitting at your feet as a student, as a disciple. I pray that we would prioritize listening for your voice in the word of God and coming to know the God of the word. I pray for our whole church during this time that has awkward quietness, true. It has ample time to practice these things, but it also has tremendous temptations and emotional upheaval. I pray, Lord, that you, by your grace, would make it a laboratory for us to flex 
our muscles, to grow in our practices, and to come to a deeper rooted relationship, a fruitful relationship with the living God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.